0: And so listen, on both campuses, take your uh, Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to chapter number one. If you don't know where Isaiah is, not long after the book of Psalms, in the middle of your Bible, of course it's in the Old Testament, you will find the book of Isaiah. You shouldn't have a hard time. It's a big, bulky book, 66 chapters, and uh, you will find it quickly. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel like you're just overwhelmed with everything that you have to do and that there's not enough time to get done the things that you are required to do. Anybody ever feel that way maybe at work or, or with your family? I, I, re, I saw once um, where someone said, if God has a certain number of things that I must accomplish before I die, right now I'm so far behind, I will live forever. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes we feel that way. And I have to tell you, I feel that way just a little bit when it comes to this current series that we're in, thinking about the mighty voices of the prophets This entire summer. You will remember, of course, that we have spent the last five Sundays considering only five of the 100 plus named prophets in the Bible. There are only, I'm sorry, there are more than 100 prophets in the Bible that are named and we've spent five Sundays and we've gotten to five of them. Over these last five weeks, we've talked about John the Baptist, Samuel, Elijah, Joel and then last Sunday, Elisha. And over the next five Sundays, we are going to con- uh, continue the series and we're going to think about five more. In these next five Sundays we're going to consider Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah and Malachi. Now that's 10, and uh, we will consider a total of 11 over the course of 11 or 12 weeks. Now, I don't know about you, but that feels like we didn't quite get the job done, doesn't it? It feels like there's so many more that we ought to be talking about, and I wish we had time to talk about all of them, but if you're going to miss some of the prophets in a study of the prophets, there's one that you could never miss, and that is Isaiah, to where we have turned today. If there there is any prophet. That in a series about the prophets, you must dig into his life a bit and his message. It would be the prophet Isaiah. I don't think any of you would disagree with me when I state the obvious truth about Isaiah's ministry by saying that he was, of all of the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah was the most prolific of all of those proclaimers of God's truth and preachers of his word. Not only was he the most prolific, he wrote the most fully and and had the widest spreading and maybe even the longest lasting ministry, but he was, many would say, the most important of all of the prophets. And You might make that case simply uh, because of the number of times in which Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. Now, when you consider his writings, there are 66 chapters in this book. And compared to other prophets, for example, Daniel, I think, has 12 chapters in it. Many of the minor prophets are two chapters, three chapters. It's just a, there's a small little book. This book of Isaiah is just full of this, this great amount of content proclaiming the truth of God. But if you, you don't have to only think about the sheer content. When you consider that the, the prophecies of Isaiah, are quoted or alluded to in the New Testament over 60 60 over 60 times. Compare that to Jeremiah, who by the way is the only Old Testament prophet with more content than Isaiah. Isaiah has 66 chapters, Jeremiah, I forget exactly how many, 58 I think, a little a, a couple of less chapters or a few less chapters, but more verses. Some of those chapters are longer in the book of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah, with all of his proclamation, is only quoted in the New Testament six times. And Isaiah, over 60 times. So I think you would agree with me, obviously, the prophecies of Isaiah are extremely important. Maybe the most notable quotation from Isaiah that you find in the Gospels is in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus took the prophecies of Isaiah 61. Do you remember Isaiah 61? Here's what Isaiah says in verse number one. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the good news and to set the captives free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when you go to Luke chapter number four, Jesus quotes in the synagogue in Nazareth, or he reads that exact passage And Jesus then appropriates the words of Isaiah to his own life. And he says in that chapter, Luke chapter number four, that today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. So Isaiah is critically important to our understanding of the Bible, our understanding of redemption, and um, and our understanding of end times and future days. And in fact, it is vitally important to our own understanding Of our spiritual need. And we saw that play out this morning here in Weaverville in our eight o'clock service as we saw a lady come to the altar and put her faith in Jesus and trust Christ as her Savior. And so it was the message of Isaiah where she understood her need as a sinner. Chapter number one, verse number one of Isaiah is one of those verses that preachers, students of the Bible, simply love. Because there is so much information about the man and the ministry all packed into this one verse. Look at it, Isaiah 1, verse 1. This is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These were the kings of Judah. Wow, a lot of good information in there. Number one, Isaiah was the son of Amoz. Now we don't know a lot about Amos, but there are some people who believe that Amos was, in fact, related to King Uzziah, and that that royal connection, that, that, that royal sort of lineage in Isaiah's life, granted him access into the royal courts of Judah and even of Israel. And so he is the son of Amos. Secondly, verse number one tells us that these, this book contains the vision, or the visions of Isaiah. I mentioned to you in the very first week of this series that most of the prophets are not content. Most of what you read in the prophets is not content which is foretelling, but rather it is simply the telling of the truths of God. Remember, I said, don't get all enamored with always looking for the future things. Most of what you read in the prophets is just the prophets speaking the truth of God, not telling you what's going to happen in the future. However, there's plenty of content in the prophets about future things, and Isaiah is surely one of the prophets which tells us much about the future. These are the visions of Isaiah. Isaiah was more than just a foreteller. He was a foreteller. He was a seer, an oracle, you might say, we might call it. In fact, the Bible refers to prophets as oracles, and so this was true of Isaiah. Thirdly, verse number one tells you that Isaiah had an audience in Judah and Jerusalem. Again, those, that southern kingdom of Judah, his primary audience there around and in Jerusalem. And then the fourth thing it tells us is that he preached during the reigns of King Uzziah, King Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so when you, when you look at when these kings ruled, We can place Isaiah's ministry beginning around the year 760 B.C., that's approximate, and his ministry would have lasted all the way to at least 700 B.C. Think about what I just said. That means that Isaiah had a preaching ministry, a prophetic ministry that lasted at least 60 years. We don't know exactly how old he was when he died, but it at least tells us that God must have called him into this ministry very, very early. When he was a young man, God put him in the prophetic ministry. In fact, if you want to read about his call, you can read about it in chapter 6, at least the affirmation of his call. Perhaps he received his call earlier, but it's affirmed in chapter number 6. And Many of you will be familiar with that passage Um, In the year that King Uzziah died, chapter 6 says, I saw the Lord, he was called up, and God said, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, "Uh, Lord, here am I, send me. Now it was out of this call of God that Isaiah embarked upon this more than a half century of proclaiming the truth and telling through the the, uh, revelation of God things that would surely come. In the future of Israel and the future of the world. And the result of that for us in 2023, the result of that is that we hold within our hands this blessed book of the book of Isaiah. One other thing I would note to you, just as a point of interest, before we read a few verses in chapter one, is that the book of Isaiah has been called the Bible in miniature. Have you ever heard that? It's like a little miniature Bible. Here's why it's called that. In the Bible, there are 66 books of the Bible, which are divided in one major division into two parts. As you know, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Bible, 66 books. The first division is a division of 39 uh, books of the Old Testament and then 27 books, which make up the New Testament. That's the Bible, In the book of Isaiah, there are 66 chapters. And the book of Isaiah is divided in one primary division into two parts. The first part being, you guessed it, 39 chapters. The second division being 27 chapters. The 66 chapters of Isaiah correlate to the 66 books of the Bible. And the 39, the first 39 chapters, of Isaiah correlate to the first 39 books of your Bible, and they contain the message of the Old Testament. The second division of Isaiah, the last 27 chapters, correlate to the 27 books of the New Testament, and they convey a summary of the New Testament. And in fact, where the Bible begins the New Testament, right out of the gates in the New Testament, first uh, few verses of, uh, of Matthew, you have the preaching of John the Baptist, who comes forth with this message, make straight the path, prepare the way of the Lord. That's the opening message of the New Testament. The opening message of the second half of the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 verse 3 Here are the words of Isaiah. Are you ready? Make straight the path, prepare the way of the Lord. So you have in Isaiah a miniature depiction, a picture of the entirety of the Bible. And by the way, chapter and verse divisions in your Bible are not inspired, right? Those were added later by man. So I don't know who divided Isaiah that way, but God bless them. And I don't know if they planned it or if that was by the the uh, influence of the Holy Spirit alone. But that's the way the book of Isaiah was divided up. One other interesting fact you may want to know is that of all of the uh, fragments of documents that were found at the Dead Sea, in the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, 48, uh, the only complete scroll that was found in all of those thousands of of fragments of documents was the Scroll of Isaiah. And there is a 2,500-year-old, 2,700, 100-year-old document there, uh, the scroll of Isaiah. Well, we're not going to read from that Hebrew scroll they found in a cave. We're going to read from our Bibles, and we're only going to read three verses to begin with. Look with me in chapter 1 and verse number 16. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. "'Wash yourself,' God says. "'Wash yourself and be clean,' be made clean. "'Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes.'" Cease to do evil. This is a message of repentance, by the way. Be washed, be clean, repent. Verse 17, learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Verse 17 says, learn to live a life that pleases me. Here's what that life looks like. And then in verse 18, a verse that you're all familiar with. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I want you to imagine in your mind as you open the book of Isaiah and you begin to read these first verses of chapter number one that you have been escorted into the courtroom, the high and holy courtroom of all eternity. You are in the courtroom of God himself. You stand before him in that place and you realize that you are in the presence of the powerful holiness and perfection of Almighty God. If you want to know what it would be like, go back and read chapter 6 where you read of the austere and, and even fearsome nature of that courtroom of God. Imagine as you begin to read this book that you are escorted into that courtroom and seated upon the bench is the judge of all eternity. God himself is seated upon the bench you notice that he is neither harsh nor sentimental. He's not unkind and demanding and and harsh. Neither is he like an old grandfather. Rather, he is the perfection of justice. He is absolutely right and just. And in that courtroom, as you stand in the presence of this just judge of eternity, you hear him speak the words recorded in verse number 18. Look at it again. Verse 18, come now, come. We often read these words and we say in our minds, isn't that sweet and wonderful and kind? God says, come on, let's talk together We envision this verse very often like we speak to puppies. We say, come on, it's okay. Come here, come here, come here. That's not what's in view here. I don't mean to say that God's not being kind. He is. But he's not acting like a sentimental old man. When the Bible says, when God speaks the word, come, it means appear before me. It is a command more than it is an invitation. Come and stand before me. He goes on to say, let us reason together. That word reason is a very important word. It is a legal term. It literally means let us reason, let us adjudicate your case. That's what it means. I command you to stand in my presence, and as you stand in my presence, we will decide your case. That's what's in view here. This is the reason we envision this passage rightly as, this text, as the courtroom of God. Now, if you go back to verse number two, you will see where God Having called you forward, standing there in front of him to adjudicate your case, he calls court into session. Look at verse number two. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. Who are the witnesses in the courtroom? The heavens and the earth, all of creation. God calls creation to bear witness to this testimony. And now he begins like a prosecuting attorney. And God begins to make this opening statement about Israel. Here's his opening statement. Just jot it down, then we'll see it in the text. God says of Israel, these people are guilty of unrighteousness. That's his opening statement. That is his declarative, as if you could imagine um, him standing in the courtroom and saying, um, we will prove In this court, we will prove that this nation, these people, are guilty of unrighteousness. And watch how he makes this perfect case against Israel. Verse number two. I have nourished and brought up children, and yet they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, and the donkey knows his master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people... Do not consider me. The first thing that he says about Israel is that they are ungrateful. They are unthankful. He says, I have raised up these people to be my people. They are my children. I brought them to myself and yet they don't acknowledge me. It, they're, they're not as good as an ox. They, they are not as grateful as a donkey who knows where he gets his food, where, who knows who his master is and yet... God says of Israel, they don't acknowledge my existence at all. They're unthankful. He goes on beginning in verse number four to say they are ungodly. Look at verse four. They are a sinful nation. They are laden with iniquity. They are a seed of evildoers. They are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked me to anger. They have gone backwards away from me. They are revolts. Uh, They revolt against me, verse number five says. He says they are ungrateful and they're ungodly unrighteous in the way that they live. Again, speaking of Israel, he says in verse number five and verse number six, because of their lack of gratitude and because of their ungodly living, their lives now are spiritually broken, spiritually diseased. They're unhealthy. Their lives are are a mess. Look at the end of verse number five. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there's no soundness in them. They're they're full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. These sores have not been closed or bound up. They haven't been treated with ointment. He he says that Israel has become ungrateful. They have become ungodly. And because of their ungodliness, their, their lives are a wreck. And he goes on beginning in verse number seven to say, and now as a result of this brokenness of their lives, their nation is almost unrecognizable. To me. Look at verse 7. He says to them, Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers are devouring your land. It's desolate, overthrown by strangers. In fact, look at verse number nine. He says, If it were not for God leaving us a remnant, Israel would look like, would be as sinful as and could be likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. These are his people. And yet because of their ingratitude and their ungodliness and their, and their spiritual sickness, their entire nation is likened so much to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that when he addresses them, beginning in verse number 10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear unto the law of God, you people of Gomorrah. He calls them, he's talking to Israel, but he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. Now again, God in Isaiah 1 has drawn Israel as a nation into his courtroom and he's made this case against them. But you will remember a couple of weeks ago we were in the book of Joel and we said that there were a lot of parallels between Israel and America. And that America has been Ungrateful to God for the way He's blessed our nation. And we have begun to live in corruption as a people. And as a result of that, we are wounded as a nation. And in many ways, our nation doesn't even resemble what it would be and could be if we lived in obedience to God. The the context, the application, however, of chapter number one, the context is God's judgment on the nation of Israel. His His condemnation of them but the application has to do with us as well because he's speaking to Israel it's true of America but let me ask you if God called you into his courtroom if God said to you come appear before me we're going to decide your case would he say of you You have been ungrateful for my grace in your life. You have not acknowledged my grace in your life. You have decided to live your life the way that you want to live it in an ungodly fashion, disregarding all of my commands. You have rejected my ways and my truth. Your life is broken as a result of it, and I don't even recognize the life that you're living because you have rejected my ways. If God called you into his courtroom, how would that case be made? without Christ if you don't know Jesus as your savior that is exactly what God would say to you these verses in chapter one apply to the life of every unbeliever as surely as they apply to the nation of Israel or to the United States of America and I can hear some of you protesting I I, I can I can imagine what some of you are thinking in your minds you're thinking but but hang on now pastor I'm not that bad really I mean Sure, I I don't really follow the Lord. I don't claim to be a Christian, but I'm a decent person, right? You know, it's Sunday morning. I'm in church already. Come on. I'm not a bad person. I, I try to live a moral life. And, you know, I've done some good things, and I and I'm a church person, and maybe you got baptized at some point in your life. And you begin to raise these protests. It's almost as if as God, the prosecuting attorney, is calling you into the courtroom and deciding your case, you're over at the defendant's table going, objection, objection, your honor, objection, your honor, but what about? And God sees and he knows your objections and he knew the objections of Israel. And so here's what he says, jot this down. He says to us that even though we are guilty of unrighteousness, he says most people try to establish their own righteousness. It's what Israel was trying to do, and it's what most people try to do. In chapter number one, beginning in verse number 10, the Lord is addressing the religious practices of these unrighteous people. Let me say it again. They are unrighteous people, but they are practicing religion. And so listen to what he says to them. Verse number 10, hear the words and the law of the Lord. Verse 11, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices? I'm full of burnt offerings and the fat of fed beasts. And I don't delight in the blood of bulls and lambs and of goats. He says, I see the religious offerings that you're bringing. I I see that you're, you're being a religious person. He goes on in verse 12, 13, and 14 to say, I'm aware of your practices of worship when you come to appear before me verse 13 when you bring these empty offerings these vain oblations when you burn your incense before me when you celebrate these new moons and sabbaths when you call together an assembly i see you gathering in your religious expressions and then he says in verse number 15 when you spread forth your hands in prayer i see i see your prayers But do you notice in this passage what God says about all of their offerings and all of their assembling and all of their praying? He says, I've had it to hear. I'm full of it. They they bring me no pleasure. I'm sick of them, he says. In fact, look at verse number 15. He says, when you spread forth your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. When you make many prayers, I will not hear. You may say, well, why would God respond to people practicing religion by rejecting them? That doesn't sound like the God that I've heard preached in the Bible. Why why would he do that? Here's why he's saying this specifically to them, and he would say the same to some of us in this room. It is because... These people believed that they could, if y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. They believed that they could appease God while still rejecting him. That they could remedy, that they could make themselves righteous while never repenting of their unrighteousness. He said, when you lift your hands to me in prayer, I will turn away because your hands are dripping with blood. Your hands are dirty. There's no sense of a desperation in your heart. There's no sense of a a need for a savior in your heart. There's no sense of a repentance in your heart. In fact, Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter number 10 and verse number 3. He says, for they being ignorant of the righteousness of God and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. Do you understand? God speaks to unrighteous nations, unrighteous people, and he says, come, let's adjudicate your case. While in your unrighteousness, you have offered me the offerings of the righteous, and I will not receive them from you. Now, go back to chapter 1, verse number 18, and notice what happens. You would would think, wouldn't you, that at this point in chapter number 1, God having assembled the court, called them into his courtroom, made such a case against them, rejected all of their objections as simply being religious activity, you would think the gavel would fall, and God would say, away from me you sinners, out of my presence, you would think. But that's not what he says. Look at verse 16, wash yourselves. He he describes the filth of their lives, the brokenness of their lives, the sickness of their lives, the putrefying sin sores of their lives and he says, wash yourselves. Look at verse 18, come now, let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as pure as wool. And everybody should be thinking, how does this happen? How can sinners, sinning nations or sinning individuals, how can sinners be summoned to God's courtroom, stand in his courtroom, and he makes the case of all of our unrighteousness, and he says to us that we can never fix it ourselves, And then he says, now, be clean, be washed, and let's be in fellowship. How could that happen? Well, Isaiah is going to tell us in a later chapter, but the answer is he is going to accomplish this work through the work of his righteous servant. Simply put, here it is. All of us are unrighteous, and so God would need a righteous one to come and remedy Our unrighteousness. Write it down. Here's the principle that you need to know. It is that unrighteousness cannot be repaired. Say it again. Your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness cannot be repaired. It must be replaced with perfect righteousness. And that can only be accomplished by God's righteousness. Servant, Turn over as we close to Isaiah chapter number 53. Both campuses, look with me. Isaiah chapter number 53. Look at verse number 11. Isaiah 53 verse 11. Speaking of God, it says, he shall see the travail of his soul and God will be satisfied. For by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities chapter one of Isaiah begins with this proclamation a symbol in the courtroom God is presenting his case we are guilty of unrighteousness and though we've tried to do better and work harder and be more religious and and try to straighten up and fly right we remain unrighteous And so God says the only way you can be washed clean, the only way your crimson red sins can become as white as the pure driven snow can become like wool. The only way is God says, I will send my son, my righteous servant. And in chapter 53, he describes the life of this one person, this one servant who would sanctify, who would save and forgive many unrighteous ones. Verse number 9 of chapter 53 says that this righteous servant would be perfectly righteous. Do you see it in verse number 9? There's no violence in him. There's no deceit in him. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8, verse 12, speak of his great suffering. He was bruised for our iniquities, verse verse 5 says. He was chastened for our sins. Verse number 4 says he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows he suffered for us. Verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 9 and 10. And verse 12 tell us that his suffering led to his death. And so it's very clear from our perspective looking back that even though Isaiah proclaimed this righteous servant 700 years before Jesus was born, he was clearly speaking of Jesus Christ who would be the righteous servant that would cover our sin. Now to close, I want you to go back to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 18. And I want to read this verse to you one more time and I want you to let this invitation, this hope-filled invitation settle into your heart. Verse number 18, God says come now, let us reason together. Says the Lord, come, appear before me. Let's adjudicate your case. Let's Decide your case. You're unrighteous. There's no doubt about that. God's already made that case. You've tried to fix your unrighteousness by just being less unrighteous. Just be more righteous. And every objection you've raised, but I've done this and but I'll do that and but I'll be better and but I prayed and but I was baptized and but I brought an offering and but I went to church and every objection, God simply dismisses. Had it with that. God says, you cannot appease me at the same time that you reject me. You cannot fix your unrighteousness by being more unrighteous. Here is how you can be clean. I will send a perfectly righteous one. And Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us have gone away in our unrighteousness. And God took the righteousness of Jesus and put it on us while he took our unrighteousness and he put it on Christ. And at the cross, Jesus shed his blood to die in our place so that our unrighteousness might be taken away. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross is your only hope of surviving the moment and it will come when God will say to you come let's adjudicate your case let's decide about your life and if you stand there having tried to make yourself righteous you will be lost forever but if you stand there that day saying I have trusted in the righteous servant of Isaiah 53 the son of almighty God if you've done that then you will be saved washed and clean in that day.